Our Father and our God, we thank You for Your amazing grace that You have bestowed upon us who are Christians. And we come to worship You because of that grace. We pray, Father, that You would fill our minds with Your truth as we think upon Your Word this morning. We pray that You would forgive us our sins, for we know that they are many. And we confess them knowing that Christ has paid the price of the debt that we never could pay. We come to You, Father, asking that You would send Your Spirit and power to work in our midst to save sinners and to sanctify Your saints. Give us understanding of this truth, Father, of what a man sows, a man reaps. We pray, Father, for our sister churches throughout the world, as they meet together, some in harm's danger. Watch over them and protect them as they seek to worship You in truth and spirit. Bring many into Your kingdom. We thank You, Father, for the truth that Your gospel will flood the nations. And we pray, Father, that even this day that would be true. We pray, Father, for the situation in the Middle East, we know that you are in control of all things, that this is not something that surprised you. We see the handiwork of wicked men. We pray, Father, that you would intervene by changing hearts and bring an end to all wars. Pray that we would be faithful to the task of realizing that life can be so short when literally hundreds of thousands were killed without any kind of notice whatsoever. Cause us to realize that no one is promised tomorrow and that today is the day of salvation. We pray for those not able to be with us this day. You know their reasons and needs. Pray that you'd minister to them and if they are out of town worshiping elsewhere, that they would be blessed. Bring them back to us safely. Be with those who need your healing hand upon their body. Comfort those that you take from this world. We pray for those that would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual needs, that you would bring them back to us as well. True repentance. All of this we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Galatians chapter 6. We'll again read verses 7 through 10. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we, will, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now we began to look at this passage last Sunday morning and a number of you were out 
So I'm tempted to uh, re-preach that sermon, but I'm not. I'm going to withstrain myself there. Uh, but I do encourage you to go back and listen to it if you were not here, or hopefully you listened to it already, because that sermon lays the foundation for today's sermon. Sowing and reaping is a universal principle that we all understand. We experienced it in our life. Uh, some of us may have experienced it as children. Your parents may have said to you at some time or another, now if you are good, most likely visiting somewhere, then I will reward you with an ice cream comb or something. But there was also the other side. If you're not good, you will not get an ice cream cone and you will be punished. That's the principle of sowing and reaping. We all should grasp that principle. We should know it. But the sad truth is, we often ignore it. I mean, even as children, did we not often ignore it? We, I mean, here we had this opportunity to get this delicious vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, whatever, ice cream cone. And we did not do what our parents said. And we missed out on it. We, we ignored the principle that they spoke to us. Now, especially when it comes to sowing to the flesh, as Paul writes there, one sows to the flesh, he will reap corruption. Now, when we hear these words, we often automatically think of sexual sin. Now, now that's included in what Paul is speaking of. He's already addressed it earlier in chapter 5. But it's much broader than that, not just sexual sins. Listen to what John Brown writes. And you know, a lot of times I mention theologians of the past, and you're not familiar with them. John Brown is one that uh, was often used by Spurgeon and other great pastors of the past. Let me give you just a little bit of history of John Brown. His great-grandfather, early one morning in 1738, he was a shepherd boy with hun homespun clothes, and barefooted, stood at a bookstore there in Scotland. And the shopkeeper was quite surprised to see this young 16-year-old boy standing there, especially at his request. He said, I would like to buy a Greek New Testament. Well, there was another individual, a Greek professor, there and he overheard the young boy say that and he said to John Brown if you can read that book you shall have it for nothing well the shopkeeper got the book and handed it to John Brown a thin leather volume and to the astonishment all that were in the bookstore he began to read the Greek New Testament and he won the prize. By that afternoon, he was back to his flock there in the hills of Aberdeen, having walked some 48 miles since the previous evening to be able to obtain that treasure of the Greek New Testament. 
that was the great grandfather, I mean, the grandfather of John Brown, who was known as being a Bible commentary. He read the Bible. Matter of fact, they said it seemed as though when he preached, he never preached except from the Bible. In other words, everything that came, came to his mind as he preached the Bible. And that's who I talk about when I mention a lot of times I will say something and quote something from John Brown that, like I said, other great men of God quote. He says, The man who is entirely occupied with carnal things, though he might not be what is ordinarily termed immoral, the man who is strictly honest and honorable and exactly religious, so far as external morality and religion, who yet does not look at things unseen and eternal. That man too sows to the flesh. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying your typical church member who seems to be religious, but yet does not look at things unseen and eternal. Not looking at things that are unseen, eternal. In other words, spiritual things, he says, sows to the flesh. So to sow to the flesh reveals that you have a lack of concern for spiritual things. In other words, the mind is filled with worldliness, things of this world, to the point to where you neglect your soul, and therefore your soul is condemned. He's like those in Acts 13, those Jews who rejected Paul's preaching of the gospel message there in Antioch. And it says, When the Jews saw the crowd, there was a huge crowd. Paul had already preached the Sabbath before. And they went out and they told all their friends, Come and hear this guy preach. And everyone came in from the surrounding area. And the Jews were jealous. It says they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Now he's answering the Jews. We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not understand yourself worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. And later on in that chapter it says they dusted off their feet, and moved on. See, many allow worldly concerns to trump spiritual things. They aren't what they should be. They're not concerned about eternal life, but they're more focused on present happiness, having the things of this world, pleasing the flesh, sowing to the flesh, as Paul puts it. I mean, it's no real issue for them to forsake the assembling together of the brethren. It's no real issue for them to misworship. For they see no real joy in feeding on the Word of God. They could take it or leave it. 
Why? Because they have no appetite for it. If you put liver in front of me, I'm not going to eat it. Now, my mother likes it, but I, don't, I have no appetite for liver. But that's the same way some are with the Word of God. They have no appetite for the Word of God. But let them please the flesh. Now, that's a different thing. I mean, they will spend time, money, make all kinds of sacrifice, get up way before dawn, drive hundreds of miles, stand in rain, sleet, and snow to see their team play, or to do something that fulfills some worldly pleasure of happiness in their life. Now why? Because their heart is in love with the things of this world. Their heart is in love, as Scripture talks about, their God. Not the God of the Bible, but their God. And they would rather watch the saints play on the Lord's day than to seek to be with the saints in God's house. And there's many. Now you approach them and ask them if they're a Christian. Oh yes, I'm a Christian. I made a decision way back yonder. I'm a Christian. Then Why are you at a saints game on the Lord's day instead of with the saints in God's house? Well, 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 are you a fundamentalist? I mean, you don't have to be so hard on me. Can't I take just one day and go and watch the saints play on the Lord's Day? No, you cannot. Not if you're a child of God. Because it's a sin. Now, that's the thing about it. People are scared to call certain things like that a sin. It's a sin. It's a sin to miss the Lord's Day to be at a football game. God did not ordain us to watch sports and play sports on His day. He created us to worship Him on His day. Now, if you don't like that, take it up with God. Don't take it up with me. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at God. See, that's, that's where it is. We don't want to get mad at what God says, but that's what God says. I'm just simply stating His truth. Now, some would say, well, that's your interpretation. Well, how about going back and reading the Ten Commandments and reading the Fourth Commandment and what He says on the fourth day? See, sad to say... But today is just about anything will trump worship in God's house. And that's why the majority of churches have less than 50% of their membership showing up on the Lord's Day, just as I mentioned last week. Now let me correct myself on something last week, because I went back and I said, well, I want to dig a little bit more deeper in our associational uh, minutes book and what was reported there. And I did come across that... There are more than one churches, church that um, has at least 100% or more attending on Sunday. There are actually three counting our church. One had 25 members and they have 25 they wrote down that were attending. Another one was close to ours. But only 15 out of the 60 churches... 15, did you hear that? Only 15 out of the 60 churches in our association have 50% or more coming on the Lord's Day. Listen to some of these numbers. One church has 3,591. You say, man, that's a big church. They got 540 that attend. 
Did you hear that? 3,591 on their church roll and 540 attend. Another one has 400 on their church roll, 39 people attend regularly. 439 attend regularly. Another one, 158 members, 15 attend regularly. That's 9.4%. And then the worst, 554 members, 48 attend. Now what causes that? Well, that's what Dirk said there in the announcement. Manipulation. People are manipulated into making a decision as a child or some other time in their life. And they join the church, but they have no heart for Christ. They have no desire for the things of God. They still have a desire for the things of the flesh. And they continue to do the things of the flesh. Our churches, sad to say, are filled with unregenerate people. And in these churches... If a pastor goes in and tries to bring about reformation when you have 500 and something and only 39 to 10, he's often voted out. Now, how's he voted out? Well, guess when those people show up? They make the phone calls and say, look, this pastor's talking about you. And comes a business meeting. Your church has been averaging 39 people out of the 500. You have 300 show up. I remember that happening about 35 years ago in a situation that I was in. And the particular pastor that we were trying to call to the church, there were those that decided they didn't want him as pastor. And I saw people show up for that vote that had not been in that church for five years that I'd been there. I said, who are these folks? Well, they had got on the phone and people had called and said, you need to show up. we got an important business meeting. Unregenerate people that run the church who need a new heart. Second, we see that evil sowing will bring about evil reaping. Now this has been clearly revealed to us this past week. We have seen it right before our eyes. Hamas has sowed great evil, wickedness. And now they are reaping what they sowed. Going into Israel and killing over 1,300 per capita. That's worse than what we experienced on 9-11. If someone doesn't believe in man's depravity, he is totally blind when something like this reveals just how depraved man is. How in the world can one seek to justify such wickedness? But there are people seeking to do that. Even here in the United States, as they had their rallies this past week, and even some... So wicked to say that that was justifiable. 
most our society condemns such heinous sins. The murder of unarmed citizens and even the beheading of babies. But you know, I think of the hypocrisy when they say nothing in America about ripping babies apart by abortion. I remember years ago when I was standing in front of the abortion mill with Roy McMillan, we were holding up pictures of these precious babies that had been aborted. I remember ladies coming and said, why are y'all doing that? You shouldn't hold those pictures up. Well, ma'am, that's what's happening. This is what's happening in there. Why are you getting mad and upset with us? You ought to be getting mad and upset with those in there that are doing this to unborn babies. See, people get upset, but they often get upset at the wrong individuals. Such wickedness can only be explained by the teaching of Scripture. It's the work of the flesh. Notice what Paul says in the chapter earlier, chapter 5, in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentiousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you before, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is very clear. And he deals with four classes of sin. The sin of lust, fleshly thought, fleshly words, and fleshly actions. And he makes it clear that if that's a person's lifestyle, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, most of our society condemns these heinous sins, especially as what we have seen. But have you ever stopped and thought and considered God's common grace to us in this room? Do you not realize that we could have been born into one of those Muslim families and that we, only by the God's grace, common grace, we could have been one of those that went over into Israel and slaughtered those babies and citizens. You say, oh no, no, I would never do that if you'd have been born in one of those families and you'd been taught to hate the Jews as they hate. Yeah. God's grace, God's common grace has kept us. And we need to praise God that He restrains us from evil. Those who do these things most surely will reap corruption, as Scripture says. Let none think that they are saved. Yet, Muslims think that doing those things even increased their treasures from Allah. 
They're deceived. Now, we have to realize the things they love, God hates, and scriptures is what teaches us that. Some have lived in sin for so long that it becomes its own punishment. You know, recently they've shown a lot of the sin in the liberal cities and they'll go down and they'll show these that live on the street. And it's so sad. So sad to see what sin does to people. And they're sitting there shooting up with all kinds of drugs, underfed, skin and bones. So sad. And I can't help but think of that truth right there. That often sin is its own punishment. If it is not in this world, it surely will be for them when they leave this world if they've never repented. Spurgeon said, What a dreadful thing sin is when it comes to the full. If there, are, if there were no fire that shall never be quenched or no worms that shall never die, you need not worry. But, we see the truth that there is a hell. And it's worse than those sinners realize. Now I want to be very clear. If any of you are going on living in sin and you don't repent one day, you will wake up in this place that Spurgeon refers to as hell. Surrounded by the fullness of your own guilt, in this awful wickedness, every single sin you have sowed, now did you hear that? Every single sin you have sowed in the flesh will stare you in the face. And God will say, reap here, reap there. And it will be an indescribable misery as we looked at a few weeks ago. You will see the fullness of your sin, all your transgressions fully developed. And the awful harvesting will be infinitely more than anyone can bear. For it says, whatever man sows, that shall he reap. Those Individuals, I restrain from even calling them men, who cut off the heads of the babies, will see the faces of those babies for all eternity. Those who lead others to commit great sins will see the faces of others forever. That's what that mastermind who I thank God that he was killed he's now in everlasting damnation and sees the faces of those that he was instrumental in having killed and they may try to escape from it but they won't be able to do so 
For God is a just God, and God has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You may think that my words are too hard, but I speak the truth in hope that if you are not saved, that you would repent of your transgressions and look to Christ who is our only hope and receive the forgiveness that He offers for your sin before it's too late. Now thirdly, I have a better news because he says, sowing, good sowing will bring good reaping. Now some might object and say, but isn't, That's salvation by works. I thought you believed in a salvation that was of all of grace by faith in Christ. Well, of course, if you know me, you know that that's what I preach. Salvation by grace of all of Christ. But it's still true that good sowing brings good reaping. That's what Paul tells us. And this good sowing and good reaping is a result of conversion. That question must be asked, what type of sowing? That's the sowing that is mentioned there in verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So one sows to the flesh, he receives, deceives himself. For the flesh, of course, is depraved, and sowing for him is evil. Now, you may do some good in the flesh, but in God's eyes, it's unacceptable as far as helping us in any way as far as salvation is concerned. Because it's done in the flesh. As John Gershner says, everything we do in the flesh is a bad good work. You hear that? Everything that we do in the flesh is bad good work. I remember years ago when I was in high school taking Bible, my teacher was a Catholic. And one day she said, Thomas, I want to share something with you. She said, I heard this example and I thought it was really good. She said, Here, someone was standing at the pearly gates before Peter, and Peter asked, why should I let you in heaven? And the person said, well, I regularly attended church every Sunday. Well, that's one point. You've got to get a hundred points. The person said, well, I prayed. Well, that's two points. You're up to three and went on and named some other things and finally got up to about eight points. Said, I just can't think of anything else. Well, you got to have a hundred points to get into heaven. And said, well, I'm straight. Well, now there is one other thing. I I believed in Jesus. Bing! That's 92 points. You're into heaven now. You see, that's what there are, those that believe. That there's us doing works that earn us so many points, but yet Christ fills in the rest. Well, that is not the truth from the Bible. For our works are what? Filthy rags. And God doesn't accept them because as Gershner said, all of our works 
are bad works. Even though they may appear to be good, they're bad works as far as salvation is concerned. Now, to sow well is to sow under the influence of another power. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not working in our lives to bring about good fruit, to bring about good sowing, then it's not acceptable. The only sowing that's acceptable to God is that which is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our sowing isn't by human ability, but by being led and guided by the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, as Paul talks about earlier in Galatians. Spurgeon said, we are led to repent of sin. We are led to believe in Jesus. We are led to new life, led to holiness, led to sanctification. And therefore, he does not take any credit to himself for anything in him that is good. For he knows that it is all implanted there by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because all the praise must go to God. So if we desire a good harvest, we must give up sowing to the flesh and sow in the Spirit. Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we must pray. We must ask, He says, for the Holy Spirit. Why? For the Holy Spirit is one that regenerates our heart. Renews us so that we reap eternal life. John, three, uh, John 6, 28 and 29, the Jews asked Jesus, and Jesus says, uh, and says, What shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God. What is the work of God? That you believe in Him whom see, He sent. So that is the first thing we must do if we wish to sow in the Spirit. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When you rest upon the great atoning work that Christ has done, the finished work at the cross of Calvary. You will begin to walk in newness of life. You will seek to be conformed to God's will in all things. You will begin to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit that he mentioned again there in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which followed the fruits of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against there is no law. So we see those who have been converted bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. One writer said, first, love. You are not really saved if you have not a loving spirit. Second, joy. Christians ought to exhibit cheerful joy. So all around might see how happy they are. Third, peace, the opposite of variance. Fourth, long-suffering, patient under proclamation. Fifth, gentleness, consider for others, readiness to help them in any way that you can. Sixth, goodness, not any holiness of which you boast, 
but such goodness as people can see and admire. Seventh, faith, reliable, keeping some faith which others so that they know your word is a good, good as bond. Eighth, meekness, that does not push itself in front of others and does not provoke. Ninth, temperance, which keeps every passion under control, not only with respect to meat and drinks, but with regard to everything else. So Paul states that if we sow to the Spirit, you will reap what? Everlasting life. Life everlasting. Now what does he say that you will reap everlasting existence? No, he says everlasting life. And there's a big difference in the two. A lot of people wish they had everlasting existence here on this earth. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying everlasting life. But what is the condition? Well, he says that believes on the Son has everlasting life. Now this believing is not simply a mental nod to who Jesus Christ is. There's so many, as I've already mentioned, that are deceived because they simply give a, a mental knowledge of who Jesus Christ is at some time in their life. Either as a child or teenager or as young adult, sometimes they say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ, who the Bible says He is. Well, what does James tell us? He says that the demons believe, at least the demons tremble. Of course, we know they are not converted. The demons believe things about Jesus. And there's a lot of people that believe things about Jesus. The demons believe things about Jesus, but children are the demons converted. No. Matter of fact, they hate Christ. And they stirred up men to put Christ to death. See, believe is synonymous with faith. So that one is faithing. Now, I know that's not a word, but I'm trying to make a point here. Believing and faithing. Or has faith in the Son, and He has eternal life. Some text speaks of faithing in Christ, putting your faith into Christ. And we must understand that true faith comes when a person is regenerate. He must be regenerate to be able to have faith. When his heart is changed by the Holy Spirit, and remember what we said earlier, that you must ask the Holy Spirit, when his heart is changed by the Holy Spirit, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, regeneration works. Now, do I understand all of that? No, and you don't understand all of that either. Matter of fact, we sang just a few moments ago about that, right? As we sang, I know whom I believe it. It says in the third verse there, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus Christ or Jesus through the Word, wrought peace within my heart but I know whom I have believed. 
See, we don't understand. We don't understand the Spirit working. We, Nicodemus did not understand. Remember, Jesus pointed that out. The wind blows where it blows. You may have been in a congregation years ago, and you were the only one affected by the Spirit. Your heart was changed. You say, why in the world wasn't everybody's heart changed? That's the things we don't understand. How the Spirit moves. How the Spirit regenerates. How the Spirit reveals through the preaching of the Word, when we sing that, revealing Jesus through the Word, we're talking about the Gospel. When the Spirit moves, that's what we're praying for tonight, that it will happen. As well as Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night at the crusade. As the Gospel is preached, we as counselors, and hopefully others, will be praying, Spirit move, Spirit blow. Blow on those who are unconverted. Blow on those who are deceived, who, who made some kind of mental nod years ago, but they've never truly been changed by the grace of God. Spirit, move on those. Work in their hearts. Open their eyes to their sinfulness so that they will confess their sins and that they will believe so that they will have faith in Jesus Christ. When this happens, the person is automatically united to Christ. Faith reveals when a person is in Christ, united to Him, and receives all of the Spirit's blessings by grace. And Paul clearly speaks of that there in Ephesians chapter 1, when he speaks about all blessings are where? All blessings are in Christ. And has blessed us with Christ with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So since all spiritual blessings come while in Christ, grace comes while in Christ. Grace also comes through faith. As Paul says, it is by faith in order that it may be by grace. And this gift of faith comes from God, as Paul says. Why? So that no man will boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works. Now because it's a gift of God, what do we do? We praise God. We worship God. And we never get over it. Every day as we're reminded of it, we should give praise to God. God, thank you for saving my soul. I know that I was an undeserving sinner and you gave me this gift. It's not something I would have ever been able to earn. And I won't boast except I will boast in you for your goodness. For we are what? His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works. These good works that Paul is speaking of here. Of sowing good works and not growing weary in those good works. We'll talk about that next week. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then finally, Paul speaks about reaping this everlasting life. For all who faith in Christ, all who believe in Christ. 
Spurgeon said, that is the perfection of love and joy. You shall have that. You shall ascend to successive stages of holiness and virtue through the cleansing power and the blood of Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the Spirit. And one of these days, you shall throw out the last trace of the sloth of sin. And then your disembodied spirit shall dance before the flaming eyes of Him who is purer than the sun, and by and by the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and your redeemed body shall rise, purified like the body of our own Lord Jesus and Savior, which could not see corruption because it contained no trace of sin. And then your perfected body and soul and spirit shall triumph and reign with Jesus where below in His millennial glory. And after that you shall have the fullness of life everlasting in the glory yet to be revealed. All His honor will be given to you. Not because you deserve it, but of the free Sovereign grace of God. It is only given to those whom there is the Spirit of God and who, therefore, in their lives manifest that holy character without which no man shall see the Lord. What a wonderful truth that he speaks of there. Everlasting life only comes from those who cling to Christ in the gospel. And if you have truly been saved, you desire heaven. You desire to be with Christ. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 16 through 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time is not worthy to compare with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectations of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, For this light monetary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now do you remember Paul's suffering and monetary afflictions that he experienced? Well, let me remind you of Paul's suffering and monetary affliction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, he says, I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes, more measured. Stripes mean he was beaten, children, more than anyone else. In prison, more frequently. In death, often, often they tried to put him to death. From the Jews, five times I received 40 lashes minus one. Now the reason why it was 40 minus one, which was 39, is because they said 40 would just about kill a person. And he received it five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned, and if you remember, he was left for dead. They thought they had stoned him to death. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I have been in the deep, in the ocean. In journey, often in peril of water, in peril of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, the Jews, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city. And remember, in the city, he had one time be lowered over the wall because they were trying to kill him. In perils in the wilderness, in parables in the seas, in parables among false brethren, in weariness and toils, in sleepless often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness. Beside the other things, what comes upon me, my deep concern is for all the churches. Those were his, as he said, light. Compared to what? Glory, see. That's what he's comparing to. He's saying all of these things that I experienced amount to nothing compared to what I look forward to. And he could say that because he had experienced it. Remember the vision he had. And he says, I don't know whether it was in the body or not, in the spirit. But he got a taste of heaven, in other words. And after having that taste of heaven, that's what he longed for. To be with Christ. His deepest desire, his greatest longing was Christ. And this is why he could say, for me to die is gain. In his mind, nothing, nothing compared to his desire to be with Christ. That's why he said, far better to depart and be with Christ. See, heaven will primarily be about our perfect life in that new heaven and new earth when he returns to finish making all things new, as the scripture says. When he finishes that which Adam and Eve did not finish. Heaven and earth, new heaven and earth, are going to be similar to what they experienced at the very beginning, being there in Eden. Now, we don't know a whole lot because the scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot. But Eden was perfect. And where we go in the new heaven and new earth, it will be perfect. And of course, the things that makes it so perfect is Christ being there and knowing that we're with Him. But there will be things that we have to do and, and we will be given things to do there in the new heaven and new earth. And we'll never grow weary, never grow tired. And it'll be something that we will just continue to experience joy upon joy upon joy it's just like I said, so difficult for us to grasp here in this sinful world. But yet we should never allow our light and momentary afflictions be greater than the wonder of eternal life. The worries of this present world should fade away quickly when we meditate upon eternal life. 
with Christ. We must never settle for brief pleasures when we are promised eternal life. Don't be like Esau who settled for a quick bowl of stew and missed out on the wedding feast of the Lamb. Can you imagine that? Her bowl of stew that was gone went through his system and out of his system. It was gone. Missed out on the wedding feast of the Lamb. Don't be like Esau. Today is the day of salvation. And may the Lord graciously give us all the Holy Spirit. And may we all meet in heaven to depart no more forever and ever. For we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, how we pray that You would drive this truth by Your Spirit into our minds, into our heart. Do not allow us, Father, to be sidetracked by this world and the things of this world. Cause us to be focused. To be focused as Paul was focused on eternal things so that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. How we pray for the salvation, Father, of those here this day who do not know Christ. How we pray that Your Spirit might do that which only He can do. Regenerating the heart. Be pleased to save sinners and to sanctify your children. In Christ's name we pray.